Hey, hey, welcome to Playboys. Oh, episode 13. Yeah. 13. And we're actually Hence. recording this more or less on, on Shakespeare's birthday, right? Well, yeah, it's just a few hours away from Shakespeare's and myself. I can see you're gearing up to do your quote there. Off you go. Hence, home, you idle creatures. Get you home. Is this a holiday? What? No, you're not. Being mechanical, you ought not walk upon a laboring day without a sign of your profession. Speak! What trade art thou? I'm a carpenter, sir. Where is thy leather apron and thy rule? What does thou with thy best apparel on? You, sir, what trade are you? You scoundrel! Now, you added that. He doesn't call me a scoundrel. <laughs> now, I feel personally attacked. It's like, you, you blocks, you stones, you worse than senseless things. Oh, your hard hearts, you cruel men of Rome. Knew you not Pompeii. Knew you not Playboys. We are reviewing one of the most unfortunate events of Shakespeare's. Hence, is the 13th episode because tis a tragic ending. Most like Jesus Christ's ending. But we're not, work, we're not talking about J.C. Talking about Julius Caesar. Mm. I have just one thing to say. A2, PJ. A2. <laughs> then fall the books, boys. Very good. That's, that's your little contribution there. <laughs> it's been building up, guys. It's been building up after promoting Julius Caesar for the last two months. Yeah, for and several maybe... months of, of video clips <laughs> to promote this it's, random episode. We, <laughs> by, by, we, we promoted this episode by far more than any official episode from Playboys, more than any, more yeah. than all Patreon episodes combined. I'm not joking, no. I, th- I think we did. Um, and, you know, Alex had told me, look, it's just a generic play. It's nothing special. So I thought, oh, no, we overhyped it. But I read it, and I really, really enjoyed it today. I'm glad you did. I loved it. I loved the play. So, um, yeah, I'm glad you liked it. I was worried that um, you, you might not like it so much. I've read this a second time now, just last night. And I must say, I, I even liked it better the second Hold time. Hold on. You've read the play twice, but you've read Act 1, Scene 1. Uh, <laughs> at least 40,000 times I think many, many videos to prove that as well everyone so get, get on get on the Patreon there and did you um, ever discover whether or not it was a holiday that's the key <laughs> I, <laughs> I think you see when I read out that quote I actually wasn't sure because I literally just read out the first part oh, no. we'll do a poll online we'll ask, Indeed, we'll ask is, this, is this a holiday <laughs> <laughs> is this... so JC so what are thine what are thine thoughts? Um, look, I studied this time period, so yeah, it, yeah. it hits my interests. Uh, Dean, I, I loved it. Yeah. So Dean studied ancient history and philosophy. So, yeah. So um, what, what did you, did you feel it was an accurately historical play? Accurate historical play? Uh, I think more or less. I mean, I don't remember, you know, a lot of the details of what I studied. But I mean, at one point, for example, when we see that Cicero dies, I looked that yes. up to see, like, is that accurate? And yeah, that's more or less accurate. So oh, I think okay. that it's, you know, there might be other things that, that weren't accurate, but I, mean, I think overall it's fine, you know? I mean, Shakespeare is not, I mean, Shakespeare is known for taking liberties. This is never yeah. a fully accurate um, story. But I think from all the plays that I've read so far, this seems more realistic than, the other ones where he's taken more liberty. Uh, except, I'm afraid, the, the famous quote, et tu, Brute, um, that might not have been Caesar's last words. I was just reading about it. Right. Um, that's just something that, 
And I'm afraid also, very disappointingly, Shakespeare did not invent that phrase either. It's just a common phrase that um, plays about... Yeah, uh, yeah, I heard that uh, Julius Caesar uh, in in the Elizabethan time period or a bit before would have said. Uh, He might have said something like, um, I I believe it was... uh, uh, watch you two kids because supposedly there was a young person um, attacking him and he was surprised that this child was, or young person was attacking him and some say he didn't say anything at all, which is probably realistic I think yeah. uh, saying nothing is more, maybe a scream <laughs> a bit more, exactly <laughs> well, well, do you want to talk about the play especially because you know the time periods and maybe talk a bit about the story and as well the actual things that happened. Sure. Look, let's start real quick. I always like to start with the dramatis personae. Let's see who's in this yes. play. So we have Shake. Uh, we have Julius Caesar, right? That's the and most all, important. And, and there are historical figures. None of them are not. None of them are fictitious. Fictional yeah. figure, I think. Yeah. So Julius Caesar's there, and we have after Caesar's death the third triumvirate. So the mm. first triumvirate, to, to, to remind you, was um, with with Caesar and Pompey the Great. And mm-hmm. a, a chap called Crassus. He's not not really that me- well remembered. And uh-huh. these were three people who were um, essentially taking unofficial control of Rome. And now the yes. second triumvirate appear in this novel. So after Caesar dies, he was the remnant of the first triumvirate. We have Octavius, Caesar's um, nephew, Marcus Antonius, also you know better known as Mark Antony, and Lepidus, who's the least well remembered. Each of the triumvirates is one that's not been remembered as much. Is that a really is that a thing like more or less? There's always one that was just slightly less, yeah. There's uh, always kind of like power. so originally Caesar and Pompey were the two that were kind of fighting for power, and then later it's going to be Mark Antony and and Octavian. There's always a third one that's like the weak link, yeah. So, th- this is the this is the most common setup in the Roman Empire at this, at this time, at this yeah. time, okay. I see, but didn't Julius Caesar break that? Isn't that the whole and is that the whole point of the so the, tri- the triumvirates came? themselves are not have no legal standing, these are something uh-huh. that are unofficially being set up by Caesar and by his nephew, uh, to then give them a lot of personal power, essentially. Okay, okay, so the triumvirates, there's they're not written to the law anywhere, you know, okay. And then we have some senators, most notably Cicero, who people will have heard of. Um, the statesman mm-hmm. and philosopher, also Publius and Papilius. And then the key is the conspirators against Caesar. Mm. So most importantly, Marcus Brutus, but also Cassius. Those are the two main ones. And yes. then the others, the others are less important, but there's also Decius, Brutus, Cinna, Trebonius, Casca, Ligaris, Metellus, Kimber. I mean, really, there's only two that are really important to name, I think. Yes, Brutus and Cassius. And, yeah, and, the, and then others, you know. And mm. then there's a totally irrelevant scene with a second sinner who is a poet and uh-huh. we have some tribunes. Now tribunes were not like senators who were running the, the Republic tribunes were uh-huh. tribunes of the plebs. So they were the lowest oh. official, but they were there to represent the common people. They usually were very ineffective apart from when the Gracchi held the role. Most of the time they couldn't do a lot. Interesting. I'd like to mention them in a second. So the names are Flavius and Marulus, and they die almost immediately at the beginning. But I do want to mention that in a second. Yeah. Why that, yeah. And then there's some random, like there's a soothsayer and there's a sophist uh, who pop up and things like that. And then the rest of them, I mean, there's loads of named people that didn't need to be named. Yes. They're just servants of Brutus, friends of Brutus. You know, it doesn't really matter who they are. Um, it, it's Calpurnia a big cast. Yeah, it's, it's a, a very large cast. cast. I'm trying to only name the ones that are relevant, you know? Yes. 
So Brutus's wife, Portia, and Caesar's wife, Copernia. That that rounds off the cast that I think deserve mm-hmm. to be named. I don't think, you know, people like Dardanius or something need to be named. Like, who, what did he do? So that's, that's a key cast, in, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> I'm always, um, just to mention quickly about the uh, cast, I'm always very interested in, in, in the woman in Shakespeare's place because it's, it's usually, especially in the tragedies, it's usually a lot less than men. So men are the biggest portion but i feel like it, there's these whatever woman figures there are in the place especially if they're the wife of a famous person mm-hmm. they will at some point in the play usually act three or four have a very important speech or something very tragic or they will commit suicide it's mm. always something 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 colorful interesting or dramatic happens to them so yeah, so it is, it is sad to see only two female characters both described as little. wife of someone, you know. Yeah, and especially in, in yeah. I suppose he does that. I just find his comedies have more women and even power, more powerful women. And the tragedies, it's maybe not Hamlet, but I find I don't know. I just find um, the the tragedies yeah. more like men oriented, uh, especially Julius Caesar. So we open up with the tribunes of the plebs. Flavius and Mark and um, Marullus Mm. asking, is this a holiday? So they ask these tradesmen, why are you all running around the street? You know, why aren't you at work, basically? And and there's a little bit of comedy in this first scene where they get a bit confused with the cobbler and what he's doing and things like that. Um, Yeah, there is it. It starts really, off like a comedy. Yeah. It does. That first scene, I think, is the most comedic of the whole play, um, to be honest. And he calls him a saucy fellow and all this uh, kind of yeah. thing. <laughs> and he says, where are you going? He says, well, I'm a cobbler, so I'm I'm leading the mob to wear out their shoes. And then he says, no, no, we're <laughs> actually going to see Caesar. So that sort of <laughs> yeah. sets the scene. And uh, indeed, and what I quoted earlier was, to be honest, a, a mix of... Um, what Flavius said about the holiday and what the other uh, tribune said, Marulus, which is you blocked your stones, you worse and senseless things, you know, your heart, hearts, your crew, men of Rome, uh, knew you not Pompeii. And to be honest, this is, from a personal note, this is, um, this is a very important play for me. Dean knows this because my grandfather, he got dementia and in the nursing home, he could still remember extracts from Julius Caesar. Uh-huh. And he read out um, he read out the last one. He read out um, Marulus, that whole speech. And my dad was there too, just playing the other uh, citizens. But he could remember this this whole, this quite long. I mean, it's quite long. This, um, mm-hmm. I mean, it is a monologue, you know, Marulus just saying. And it's all about Marulus is actually saying, like, why do you rejoice? What conquest? You know, what, why do you rejoice about Caesar? I mean, do you not remember Pompeii and the terrible things that have happened? And I thought, and immediately I'm, I feel like, what is this person doing? He seems to be rebelling against the against Caesar, you know. And- yes, yeah. I mean, I suppose you have to remember that this person, although he's a low magistrate, he is an actual magistrate. Caesar really isn't anything. He's uh, essentially a tyrant, you know. He has no real position. Yes. Um, but of course, he says that he's been given a triumph. Triumph is something that someone would have been given after maybe they'd done a really, a really good battle, or they they'd led you know the troops in a battle or something like that. And when they come back, they would get a, a triumphal procession. So Caesar's been mm. given a triumph, and all the citizens are going to see it. That scene. Uh, and very important is that these two people who have said not so nice things about Caesar uh, do get murdered. 
for it, for rebelling against Caesar. So Caesar, I feel, is a dictator because of that. He's just, he's, he's a, essentially a, a fascist oh, yeah. figure, right? Yeah, definitely. So scene two, Caesar, initially he's talking with his wife, Calpurnia. Mark Antony's there and he sort of jokes, you know, whatever Caesar says happens. So Mark Antony's part of this triumvirate, but even he's telling us Caesar's uh, top dog here, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the soothsayer says, beware the Ides of March, which is coming up very yes. soon. Yes. And that's that's key. And he says it three times and he's questioned on it, but that's all he says. You know, he doesn't offer any further explanation, just beware the Ides of March and then off goes the soothsayer. And now the Ides of March is a is a type of counting system that it would have used in Roman times, right, Dean? And it's basically the um, this the word the Ides of March is is it the fifth one, I think, and that happens to be the day uh, that day, right? Uh, or sorry, the next day. And Caesar comes across as both a, a fig a figure who might seem like he's extremely confident, but he's also extremely superstitious. So he does, you can see that throughout the play. And he seems to rely on what his instinct tells, tells mm-hmm. him, which is very, which is, I find different to Brutus. I find, we'll get to that in a second, but I find Brutus is a tragic figure in the sense of he doesn't, he is more confused than Caesar. So anyway, let's talk about that. So what happens then? So you got Caesar then. So now um, the rest of this scene, essentially, we've yes. got Brutus and Cassius, the two main conspirators, take center stage. And yes. I suppose Brutus is a friend of Caesar's, but Cassius realizes there's a problem in the, in the society. And the rest of the scene is Cassius trying to persuade Brutus, Caesar's got to go. Yes, indeed. Yeah. And look, it's difficult because we think back and we think, well, Caesar was some kind of magnificent figure and we're almost tempted to see him as the good guy. But like, yes. they're right. He was a tyrant and he, what he was doing was totally against the institutions of the state, um, against the Senate, you know, there's not meant to be a tyrant. They'd already expelled their kings. They had a senate. They're very, very forward uh, thinking. And Caesar's trying to go backwards, actually. And they're mm. he's setting himself up as a, as a as a tyrant. And they are right to fight that. I think. Yes, and I find it interesting. Uh, the first time I read it, though, to be honest, I wasn't sure who to root for. Mm. I, I think you can I, I, you can see it as both ways because um, the murder of Caesar and it might be understood as what what you're not sure who to root for, and in fact, the, the fact is, it's called Julius Caesar. But Brutus speaks four times. There, he has Brutus has four times as many lines as Julius Caesar. Yeah, and Caesar so, doesn't really do a lot in the play. Let's be honest, other than die. <laughs> indeed, and the acts. And we're going ahead a bit, but if you read the play, you sh- you will know that that happens. But anyway, so there. Um, it's the next. <sighs> The whole, basically, the whole of Act Two is basically just um, Brutus being convinced and gathering other conspirators. It's not really going too much with a story, right? I think this. Well, it's not let's so- slow down a little. There's a small detail I should add. After Brutus yeah. and Cassius talk, they bring in Casca, and then he he adds to the persuading. Small detail, but the conspirators yes. are, are. There's more than one person trying to persuade Brutus. Um, then in Act one scene three we're out in the street and they're kind of meeting i guess they're meeting sort of at night because it's you know or in a storm at least with thunder and lightning and they talk again about you know what they're going to do we see some of the other conspirators joining now Cinna, uh, for example and um, not the poet and um 
as Very Alex acted it. out uh, by the scene by the waterfall. Um, <laughs> so we're get, we're gathering together a little band of conspirators as in 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 scene one. As in act one, really, really, it's a strong first act. I think it shows us what's going to happen. You know, we've got a band of conspirators against Caesar. Some of the some some of Shakespeare's plays, Act One doesn't do a lot, but this one I think is very very strong first act. You know, yes, definitely. So you're right. Act Two, we're in Brutus's orchard, and he's talking with his servant uh, Lucius, and they find out they check the calendar and things like that, and it is going to be the Ides of March, and he receives a, a letter, and I suppose what happens here is the conspirators are going to meet at Brutus's uh, homestead, right? So. Um, the others start to arrive, Cassius and so forth, and they, they get a little guy together uh, in the dead of night, uh, faces covered in, in cloaks, um, Metellus and Sinna and all the rest. They do consider, should we include Mark Antony? And they say no. Like, Brutus is quite virtuous. Brutus mm-hmm. isn't jealous of Caesar like the others might be, and they mention that yes. later. Brutus thinks that what's happening is bad for the political institutions. He's going to save the state at the expense of his friend. And about that and what casca's intention are is not very clear you see that's so point it doesn't seem yeah. quite as altruistic no as, um, and, and but i think this is why brutus says brutus. we don't need to kill mark antony he thinks we can we can stop this political revolution by just killing caesar if we cut off the head the limbs will have no power he says later he yes, doesn't feel it and i he might have been wrong about that but he doesn't think it's necessary to kill mark antony mm-hmm. yes um so that's essentially Act Two. I mean, it's it's. I don't feel it goes. It's interesting to read. It doesn't get boring to me. But essentially, the narrative is just about Brutus slowly being convinced and him also convincing others. Yeah, um, there's a nice well. scene where he talks to his wife Portia, but yes, in all honesty, not a lot really happens. Like she's worried about Brutus because she can see something's playing on his mind, you know, and that he's going to be doing something, and he kind of tells her not not to worry. Um, which mirrors, which interesting enough, mirrors Calpurnia's um, 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 worries. So the wife of Julius Caesar. So both women in the play have the same foreshadowing, the same, I would say, instinct, um, mm-hmm. understanding yeah, that do. their husbands are in danger. And I find Shakespeare, to be fair, I find always does give um, women in in women uh, kind of this intuitive understanding. Sometimes I'm afraid it might seem like, oh, this is too irrational a figure, but at least they have this intuitive understanding. And what Brutus is doing wrong, I'm afraid, is that he's not really following his instincts, I find, whereas Portia really does yeah. think that it's not safe. And these scenes come back to back. So Act 2, Scene 1, with yes. Brutus and Portia, and Act 2, Scene 2, it's Caesar and Calpurnia. Yes. I do want to give a quote from Portia. She says this lovely line, when he won't, he won't confide in her. Yeah. Dwell I but in the suburbs of your good pleasure? If it be no more, Portia is Brutus's harlot, not his wife. And then he says, "Well, you're my true and honourable wife." So she says, "Okay, then I should know your secret." I think that was quite powerful. I, I thought Portia had some lovely lines. I thought Shakespeare gave her some um, yeah. really lovely lines. Yeah. And then, as I say, we move into scene two, and we get a very similar parallel scene with yes. Caesar and Calpurnia. Only here, Calpurnia knows there's danger and tells Caesar, "Do not go out." So in comes Decius Brutus, the other Brutus. They're not they're not brothers, by the way. That's that's yes. mentioned, and they basically ask him for help, and they say, "Well, I was going to lead you to the Senate, but my, you know, he says, well, my wife says I shouldn't go,' and he says, "Oh, well, 
she's interpreted her dream wrongly. Like here's a different way to interpret it. And, you know, he convinces Caesar, you should come to the Senate. And it's also this idea of, um, of like, well, are you going to listen to your woman? What would the play thing? What would the people think if, if they knew that Jewish sage was being ruled by a woman? Yeah. And these themes do appear a lot in, in Shakespeare and a lot of different historical, a lot, a lot of different fiction, to be honest. Um, no, here's a very fact, interesting point, PJ. Okay, go ahead, go ahead. No, just like in Dole Tales, and we did talk mm-hmm. about it, Ibsen centuries later. Uh, this idea of a man doesn't want to be told by the woman what to do and is going to go against us now. Yeah, even when it's for their own their own good. Yeah. Caesar right. says a very interesting line, though. He says, I'm not going to the Senate today. And he says, look, I'll tell you privately because you're my friend. It's because my wife is worried. That's his mistake because then his friend persuades him otherwise. But he says, look, don't tell the senators that. And the wife says, well, tell him that he's sick. Caesar won't lie. He says, don't lie yeah. to him. Don't tell him I'm sick. Just tell them that I do not will it. Like, I'm not going today to because to. I don't want to. And that's that's it. They don't question me. So he's really, really uh, tyrannical here because the Senate are the people who are actually appointed and elected to run Rome. Now, they're being very submissive to Caesar, and that is historically accurate because um, they were just huh. a bunch of... The Senate was an actual social class more than just elected politicians, you know? The, the, the right. upper class people were in the Senate. And they essentially are quite happy at this point to just take their money and not do an awful lot. And if Caesar wants to rule, they're just going to okay. let him. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and um, you know, Julius Caesar, there are a lot of parallels, I find. Yeah, reading Julius Caesar, it's reading uh, uh, a play about universal politics. So I find it just repeats itself. History repeats itself. You get a lot of, especially now in 2022, a lot of modern dictators or rulers. Just depends how you want to see them. And there are a lot of power loads. I mean, uh, there are a lot of power loads. There have, and what I find mm-hmm. interesting is when people stage Julius Caesar, they often have Julius Caesar, you know, look like some kind of person who they right. think might. They've done, um, yeah, the one they did one about uh, Donald Trump. So basically, Julius okay. Caesar made was made to look Donald Trump. But to be honest, they also made one that made him look like Barack Obama, with a stage mm. production and wasn't happy with his politics. So they're different. Uh... That surprises me because I thought that I'm reading this from a historical context and I'm realizing that he's trying to usurp the political systems of Rome. I thought the average person read this and just sort of thought, well, Caesar's the good guy because he's the famous one. Indeed. And that's why my first reading was unclear. But I thought the second reading for me, for some reason, maybe maybe mm-hmm. I've aged or something that is, or, or maybe it's, I don't know, but I just seem, now I see it very clear as this kind of... Um, what he really was a populist someone who manipulates the crowds and and can be attractive in some sense but he's really just a very self-oriented man very yeah. selfish so act three how does act two finish and there's a couple of lines in scene three which is the the sophist he writes a note to warn caesar and then scene yeah. four portia sends the servant lucius out to get brutus because she still is worried and she says kind of to go and fetch brutus back home or get send word to him she's kind of worried and that's how act two ends yes so act three i mean this is this is where it all happens right yeah definitely the ides of march are come and it's the soothsayer's there and he you know and he says yeah they're they're come but they're not gone yet you know things could still go wrong uh-huh. And the guy tries to slip him his note, and Caesar says, "Well, if the note is about my own well-being, it goes to the back of the queue. Things for the people first. Now, Caesar, this is very important. He's in the middle of the street, granting favors to people and and doing public business, and he's kind of being let to do that by the Senate. Yeah. 
And I guess at some point he was appointed consul. He was, you know, potentially, I think he was anyway, given a role. But he really shouldn't be, he's really, really too big for his boots, I think, you know, because even even his nephew, who eventually becomes the Emperor Augustus, was given a, a consul position and then essentially just ruled the country, which you know, he shouldn't have really been doing. Like he was one of the officials, you know. Yeah. It's the emperor was never a real a real political position in, in early right. Rome. They know that, okay? Yeah, there's no such thing. But that's that's jumping ahead. Uh, yeah, no, it's interesting there. the historical background. Yeah. yeah. So as Act Three goes on, look, let's let's be clear here. Um, they kill Caesar. Right, and you know, you know this reminded me of, and again, I'm jumping ahead a little bit in time. In 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 the Roman province of Judea, there was a band called the Sicarii, and they would have been in public with their cloaks and daggers hidden, and in in mass crowds, they could very quickly, all of them at once, just stab people and and commit these stealthy murders. And this reminded me of that because there's a lot of them. It's not one person killing Caesar. Yes, yes. They all stab him, you know, with, with concealed daggers. So that really and, reminded me of that. And this is what makes Shakespeare such a great um, author and such a great read because all, well, not all of them, but almost all of his plays can be really have been written today or yesterday because this just repeats itself. I mean, it's been done so often up yeah. to recent times where you got a popular figure, a, a politician, or just a popular figure, it's called. And then, well, yeah, a group of people come and then stab the person, and and and, and he dies. I mean, yeah, and yeah. they say a two brute and all the rest of it. Yeah, oh, exactly. They say that every time. <laughs> every time, yeah. But what I find interesting here is the dilemma. The dilemma I find, and there's a there's a very big moral dilemma, and that is, well, okay, if you know this person is bad, let's say let's take Donald Trump, right? Don't mean to be well. You don't have to be Donald Trump. You can go the other way. Take someone, a politician, any politician you don't like. And you think that person is doing a lot of damage, a lot of damage. Well, would you kill that person, though? Is that is that morally okay? And would even help the problem? Because the thing is, Mark Antony might be a more manipulative person than Julius Caesar. And I think, personally, after reading it, he's definitely a better orator and a better people person in this play, at least. Is it the right thing? Would, even if they do kill, will it bring good effects? And... So who's really the body? Who's the body? Who's the good here? I mean, the, uh, Br- Brutus kills. Personally, I couldn't kill even any dictator, but that's, that's just the me. Point. Um, and yeah. you know that Mark Antony does quite well because he ends up dating uh, Cleopatra, who was Caesar's ex. So he just steps in there. All right, I didn't realize that. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. But I mean, that's the whole point. I find it interesting. That's why the first time I definitely couldn't root um, any anyone. But the second time I did obviously go for Brutus, but he does a terrible thing and... I, I can't help but liking Caesar to some points as well. And you're not sure is this the right thing. And the thing is you might you might root for Brutus, but you don't really root for you don't really root for Cassius. Now, Cassius no, like you're you're right there. Figure. You're right there. So what's what's going on here? So it's like for me, this is very interesting. You don't know who to root for. And I did read a critic actually saying a critic said, Oh right, this is a play where the a Shakespeare play where for once there are no villains. So that's yeah. the way he's I thought. think that Cassius's motivations are unclear and he kind of manipulates Brutus a little bit. He um, does. But I, even after finishing it, I don't know what his motivations were. No. It's but I think that, might be. to be honest, Brutus does the right thing. Yes. I mean, in a, let's just say in a universal way, maybe, right? Like for the higher good. But it's kind of like, it's have you ever seen or what or read... Um, that Stephen King book about um, oh 
forgot the name right now. You know the one, uh, Christopher Walken, and it's, um, um, it's, Walken, yes, it's a great movie. And it's a great book, uh, The Dead Zone. So The Dead Zone, where he knows that this politician will commit serious crimes in the future, so he decides to kill him. But is it the right thing? Because it's the same, similar with Julius Caesar. Like he's maybe committed some terrible crimes, but essentially they're worried that it's going to get worse. But should he kill the the person? Just because you you, you assume that yeah they would do the best and 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 Shakespeare is doing this and it's been done with Dead so it's been doing it's been done with Minority Report with a lot of science fiction later on but he's doing this right now in 1599 with Julius Caesar and that's why I find that such an amazing play. Well, you're right to say that Mark Anthony was very clever, by the way, because he originally flees, sends a yes. servant in to say, "Look, is it safe for me to come in and talk with you guys?" They say yes. He comes in and talks. Brutus always playing the moral high ground here. Brutus is always the good guy. And he yes. says, we're going to let you speak at Caesar's funeral. We're going to do mm. things right. You know, we're not going to be tyrants ourselves, which is maybe yes. what Cassius might have wanted. Um, and they fall out about that later. And, you know, Anthony shakes hands with them because yes. he realizes that's the way, A, to protect his own survival, and B, he has a plan. Yes. Um, so Brutus and Cassius, you know, they, they have a little bit of a disagreement about, about this, but in the end, they agree that Mark Antony can speak at the funeral and things like that. Um, and then we end the act, sorry, we end the scene with um, yes. Antony talking to a servant and they send for Octavius. Now, for anyone that doesn't know, Octavius would soon change his name to Octavian um, mm. and then to Caesar Augustus. So this is the right, first yeah. emperor. So Caesar was never an emperor um octavius became the emperor i mean very very conceited to call yourself augustus you know the august yeah, one. yeah okay uh, he adopts his uncle caesar's name as essentially his first name but then that becomes a right. title so all the emperors have caesar at the beginning all oh, right i get it okay, okay. They turn his name into a title um, the theater, or even the germans would have used kaiser they would have exactly used yeah, yeah and it continued yeah. um interesting yeah, uh, so that's, and, that's what happens there. And, and talking about scene two, this is very important. He essentially, Mark Antony, and it's very clever. So Mark Antony is is the ultimate orator. He's the ultimate person who can, who's able to talk. And once again, he's a type of politician. While you've got one politician figure, you've got, these are several, these all represent different political figures. And he is the ultimate sweet talker. And he's very careful. Yeah, as you said, he's very careful he essentially flees safely first, then make sure he can go back inside. Then he pretends to be friends with the traitors, but, and he manages to talk with the crowd. And he does say, like, I find, first of all, this is the most beautiful parts of Shakespearean uh, rhyme, really. Um, Shakespeare makes a point that Mark Antony speaks the sweetest English in the whole play. And it's, it's the most pleasant to read, uh, to hear and yeah. in a manipulative way, that's our point. Just like when you hear, when you hear, when you hear Hitler, you don't really relate to it anymore. But if you were a German in the 30s, going through the stuff that went there, they thought these are sweet words, even though it might be all wrong content. And Mark Anthony's just is very similarly. It's very beautiful, and he does repeat. He repeats specific phrases. Um, so, such as, for example, and this is very important, he repeats phrases such as that, uh, I'm not here, obviously, obviously they made the right decision. I don't know. I'm just Mark Anthony. They he know won't best. speak out against them. And he calls he Brutus an honorable man. 
And I mean, it does this very cleverly. If you read the whole thing a few mm-hmm. times, one, if you read it a few times, it's really like he makes sure he's safe by saying that. Then he does say some things that are negative about them indirectly. Mm. And then he says again, oh, but obviously that can't be true because they must not. And then he continues. He's incredibly very, careful, yeah. He's incredibly sly, careful. And but the crux, the crux of what he does in this act is he, ex- he explains this to a rabble of citizens he, he, he reads out Caesar's will. And of course, Caesar had left 75 drachmas to every citizen and left some lands over to be used by, by the public. So now yes. they think, oh, Caesar's brilliant. Why have you killed Caesar? They're very easily swayed. But Mark Antony yes. gets the citizens on his side very, very easily without actively Indeed. speaking against the conspirators. Very, and, very clever. And even the four citizens, the, the things they say and the way they interact is clever. And Mark Antony says uh, they're, slight, they're, they're listening to him and slowly becoming convinced. And he says, um, I came not, friends, to steal away your hearts. I am no orator, as Brutus is. The irony, because obviously Mark Antony is the ultimate orator. Yeah. He knows this. But he just he makes himself small here. But as you know me all, a plain blunt man, which he isn't, that love my friends and that they know full well that gave me public leave to speak of him, for I have neither wits, nor words, nor worth, action, no utterance, nor the power of speech to stir man's blood. I only speak right on. I tell you that which you yourselves do know, show your sweet Caesar's wounds, poor, poor, dumb mouths. Mm. And yeah, I think that was the way he was perceived as being the blunt man, because Caesar was always the one taking center stage. But that's exactly the in politics. That, that's how it is. You get this person who seems very blunt, but it's it's particularly those more... Uh, boring people or they might be able to speak nicely but maybe it's it's, it's got a shy appearance uh yeah it just shows you that it's it's you've got a manipulator here who plays along he's acting essentially to all he he is essentially the ultimate actor within yeah. the story uh brutus the thing is brutus and caesar are very much and flaw flaw uh flawfully themselves but mark antony plays the role and makes sure that he's always at a safe space, escaping, coming back when it's safe. And it's all throughout the play. He makes sure he's playing chess moves very yes. carefully. Yeah. And we find out at the end of Act 3, Scene 2, that the ultimate chess move is about to be played. Octavius has arrived. Um, mm. Because Mark Antony it knew... It literally were, ends with, bring me to Octavius. That's how yeah. Act 2 is. Because they, they knew that if he exactly. tried to take over from Caesar, he would just get killed. So he carefully gets the mob in favor of Caesar and then introduces Caesar's nephew to take over. Indeed. So I, I said that's act... very clever. And sorry, I said act uh, two, I meant act, act three, but scene two, that's literally the end, bring me to Octavius. And then we go to a scene that's... Um, pointless? That I was just about to say, that. that's very <laughs> interesting because some people saying pointless, I've got a different opinion. What do you think about a very short scene, which is just about Cena the poet being mistaken for Cena the traitor and thus mm. being killed by the well, mob. It, put, it puts one thing across, right? It tells us that the mob were going crazy. They, they're they're yeah. rooting out the conspirators. And he says, I'm not sitting the conspirator, I'm sitting the poet. And they say, well, we'll kill you for your bad verses then. But we're, we're, we're you know, the mob's on the loose and they're not going to back down. Um, and so it tells crazy. us that. Yeah. But the scene is, is, to me, still pointless. You see, it, it seems maybe a bit pointless, but I thought it was, uh, as you said, fitting because it just shows you, and briefly, which is good, the, the whole, um, I suppose, the atmosphere more than anything, more than the 
the atmosphere yeah. of the whole. Uh, so I like that. I like that. It is only 30 lines. It doesn't look say it's welcome. I just think why introduce a character for 30 lines that we will never see again? You know, and I just want to mention something. There. I don't know if you noticed, but uh, Orson Welles did a production of uh, Julius Caesar in 1837. Did you know this? No, I didn't. And I was just reading about this today. I didn't know it was either. And the interesting thing is that 1837 and Orson Welles is making this in uh, um, a, a, a play about fascism. Basically, Julius Caesar looks like Benito Mussolini or Hitler, one of those fellows. And it's all about it's all about uh, fascism having to be killed by the conspirators. And it was a huge hit, this this production, Julius Caesar in 1837. And that's what I mean. It was such a fitting play. And when he directed that scene about Siena the Poets, the crowd went wild. It was the most famous scene of the play. Do you know why? Why? Because as you just said, it showed, and a critic once said, a critic said, this play, this brief, uh, this brief scene in it shows you what fascism, what fascism does uh, in society. That ah. is not, a, that is not an intellectual thing. That's a purely physical uh, violence that um, gets into the skin of the citizens. So fascism is when the citizens lose control of themselves, become violent, and then irrationally attack and that is what's happening here you know these people are trying to overthrow the state um yes and you know that and and arouse the mob essentially but it was it was a big thing because 1837 was it was still hitler was still not clearly the back and nor Mussolini. it's just they're not too deep the wars have started yet but it made the fears of people that they understood for the first time just by watching play oh yeah okay watch out this is what fascism can do so in a sense shakespeare actually helped it really did help, at least okay. in America, to make people aware the dangers of fascism. And remember, fascism, oh. facere means to do, so to act in Italian. And that's what the people are doing here. They're acting out um, irrationally. So be aware of okay. that. So it's a warning. It's a warning scene. I love this scene. Nice, so sir. This is where I think the play gets slightly worse. Uh, I know you okay. disagree on this. I don't think Actually, it's a bad play. I actually really loved it. I think we the strongest material is gone now. Well, you know, scene three is this. Uh, I mean, I think it all builds up. It starts yeah. strong. It builds up to scene to act three, and I think it's left a little bit weak now, just in the last two acts. And there's slightly shorter acts as well compared to act three. I just okay. kind of I think that the, the second half of the play is slightly weaker. But is, okay, so that's that's those are thine thoughts. Why do you think that? I just don't so, think as much happens. Look, let's go into Act okay, 4. Okay, let's go into it. Act 4, Scene 1, the new triumvirate are drawing up their lists of who's got to die. These people need to take control of the city and they're going to kill a lot of people, basically, to do so. Mm. Yes. So that's, that's that scene. Scene 2, it's Brutus and he's talking with his servant Lucilius and another Pindarus. Um, I guess they're trying to figure out what's going on. Cassius comes in. And there's a disagreement. Cassius and Brutus think that they're... Cassius says, you've wronged me. You've done me that's wrong. That's in scene three now, yeah. That's, so that's uh, into scene scene two, which then leads into scene three. It's a continuation. Oh yes, yeah. Right, and they argue... Um, I mean, you could argue that Brutus was wrong to not kill Mark Antony because he brings in Octavius. Like, you know, if, if they'd done what Cassius wanted, things might have gone their way. And this is the interesting dilemma. You see, Brutus did a mistake and is now blaming Cassius for having... Uh, well, he regrets killing Caesar 
And when we read King, King Caesar because Mark Antony is now against him, so he blames Cassius. So no one's taking responsibility, I suppose. Mm. But Brutus insists that what they did was done for justice. You know, he and he insists yes, that in scene three, he doesn't think they've done a murder per se. He thinks that they've done a necessary action, and and he wasn't thrilled about having it, to do it. it, it, you know? it so, so for everyone listening, it's kind of like, well, we had to kill Hitler because he would have done the Holocaust. It's that kind of mentality, uh, Brutus. Yeah, it's that. Here. It's that. Um, he so did that's, say that's it. I mean, scene three is quite long, but that's the gist of it. He did say, do, did not great Julius bleed for justice' sake? Indeed. What villain touched his body that did stab and not for justice? And now he's indicating that Cassius didn't do it for justice, he didn't do it for the citizen, he did it for a bribe. He did it for bribes. And he says, contaminate our fingers with base bribes. And he's, he's slowly. Um, uh, we're indirectly blaming Cassius and, and a big yeah. argument. It's an argument. Just to it have is an argument. Around. I mean, Cassius says to Brutus, a real friend would be blind to my faults, but no, I don't, I don't think that's, that's true. You know? mm. And it turns out, tragically, there's another reason why he's a bit bitter. Uh, Portia, I'm afraid, has, uh, has had killed herself by swallowing fire. It is such a dramatic... Uh, you see, I find this very... I still think this person, I do still like act four because that whole row and then like her hearing that she swallowed fire is very uh, a strong imagery. I'd forgotten that. Yeah. Yes. Then they, the, all the other conspirators join them and they talk about, well, they argue whether it's 70 or a hundred senators, but a lot of them put to death by this new triumvirate. Mm. But the problem is it loses me because now we finish act four and, and, and this continues into act five. By introducing a lot more of these minor characters who are all named for no reason. You know, we yes. start getting scenes with, with you know, Varro and just people I don't care about, you know? Well, the thing is, um, again, Shakespeare wasn't meant to be read. Shakespeare was meant to be seen. So in this case, it's just a normal war scene and send a lot of different people coming in. Uh, but I suppose, yes, the problem is that the audience hasn't had time to engage with any of these. You've yeah. put a lot of emotional investment in in uh, whenever, whoever you want to mention, Julius Caesar, Portia, uh, Brutus, but these are a lot of different people who you probably don't even realize exactly who they are if you're only watching it. Just watching you wouldn't even have them even yeah. or call or anything. Yeah, that's a, that's a dilemma, but at the same time, I'm not sure it wouldn't really matter during names, but yeah, I know what you mean. Yes, it. I agree that so too many new characters appear in Act Five. Yes. Yeah, and how does Act Four end? Real quick, uh, the ghost of Caesar appears to Brutus. Oh, yes. Brutus is having trouble sleeping, and he's got these randomers, Varro and Claudius, and they're all trying to sleep together and wake up, and they're all you know worrying. And the ghost appears and says, "Meet me at Philippi." Now, the, the ghost never appears at Philippi, but but Brutus goes to Philippi, and that's kind of where the play ends. Act Five moves from Rome to. Yeah. Which for which foreshadows a lot uh, Hamlet, I find right. That's a very Hamlet sort of scene, mm. or almost. Uh, and look, the yeah. actor who played who played Caesar and disappears in Act Three gets a little cameo in Act Four, so it gives him something to to do. It gives him something to look forward <laughs> to. Exactly yes, uh, but I believe um, yeah. I mean, for me, it's a very Hamlet esque scene. Hamlet will be a later play, but I so but you can already see this imagery appearing of um, and also with. Um, the Scottish play in Macbeth, you see like uh, this uh, guilt being personified here a bit. A bit I'm, af- I'm afraid with Hamlet is perfected. 
or with Macbeth, especially, is perfected. So, but this is just the beginning. It's an earlier play. In, a sen- in, the, in, a, in, in this sense, it's not as mature as, as Hamlet or, or Macbeth is. But indeed, so the play continues, and I suppose it does get a bit confusing because they're losing the war, and I don't think we have to mention exactly who and who dies. I agree with you, Dean, because it's too confusing. A lot of new characters just decide to commit suicide after appearing briefly. I suppose that is... Um, yeah, it's just... Yes. Let's. I don't think there's a lot to be said about Act 5, to be honest. You know, scene, really, scene one, Cassius and Brutus are talking a lot with Anthony and Octavian. Um, and we're going to have a war, basically. That's more or less all that happens in, in scene one. Yeah. Scene two is only about four or five lines. Brutus is riding on his horse and they're going into battle. That's an entire scene for some reason. <laughs> um, <laughs> so now we move on to scene three and this is where we get the beginning of the end. Yeah. Yes. So, and again, we get all these people to Nicias and all, you know, who, who cares? But um, essentially this is a... We're into the war scenes now at Philippi. Well, yes, um, exactly. Yes. So it's in the war scene and Cassius uh, realizes that he is going to die. And I'm afraid the thing is um, he has, um, he basically sacrifices um, his friend, doesn't he? He sacrifices his friend. Well, he asks his friend Pindarus, who is his, yes. who is his servant. He says, I'll make you free uh, and gets him to kill him. So Pindarus kills Cassius and then says, well, I'm going to flee Rome now. But we never find out if he gets away safely or not. I must say I really enjoyed that because it gave me some. Uh, it made me rethink really about this character, and I just met him. But I thought I thought that could have been an interesting, <laughs> interesting play. Someone writing about this Pandarus figure uh, escaping, and maybe he also having some <laughs> guilty feelings. Yeah, I think yeah. that Cassius here at this point, you know, he almost wants to be a martyr. Like he thinks he's achieved his end. Um, well, there's two ways you could look at it. You know, is he a noble person doing good work who's now martyring himself, or would that be more Brutus? Is Cassius just afraid and just takes the coward's way out at this point? Hmm. And there's two um, ways you could look at that. I think. You see, the thing is, he committed. Uh, um, the thing is very important to mention here. He committed uh, one. He committed once again a selfish and um, a selfish and. Uh, cowardly act because his friend Titinius is there and he says to Titinius or Titinius, um, I'm just going to go Titinius. This, if thou lovest me, mount thou my horse and hide thy spurs in him till he have brought thee up to yonder troops. And here again, that I may rest assured whether yonder troops are friend or enemy. And he says, I will be here again, even with a thought. Uh, but the thing is, he just dies immediately when he goes up there. And I get this, it's implied that Cassius kind of knew this, to be honest, but they just wanted to make sure. So he basically sacrificed his friend. His sacrificed friend his friend. Too. So it's not really, maybe if he wants to do something courageous at the end, yeah, okay, like a martyr, I suppose, because that nobody shows that what the ultimate coward he is because he can't even kill himself. He, he gets he someone to, to do it for him. Yeah. Yes, and he, made, and he made his own friend go there, even though he knew probably that he was going to die. <laughs> so no, Cassius is, is essentially... I think Shakespeare ultimately, even though we have hopes, we, I, I had hopes for Cassius that he might not be as sly. It's indicated that he probably was very sly. He probably did get the bribe, even though, importantly, in uh, Act 5 and 4, Act 4 and 5, he tries adamantly to show his love to Brutus many times. 
in an almost mm. in an almost romantic way. I feel like in an almost kind yeah. of like I almost saw it once or twice. Do they have an affair? Something like in a very passionate way. And but you're left wondering at the end because of these two cowardly acts. Was that also just all just play? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. let's rattle through the last two scenes. So Act Five, Scene Four. Well, just at the end of scene three and into scene four, we meet a new chap, Kato the Younger. He runs off into battle and immediately dies. Um, and then some soldiers tell Anthony, we've captured someone. They think it's Brutus, but it's not Brutus, but it is his friend Lucilius. So that's a good capture anyway. That's a, That scene could have been cut, in my opinion. Um, <laughs> which I don't like when he puts these irrelevant scenes so close to the end, you know? Hmm. Like, it's not a good way to have a climax, a scene that could be cut as the penultimate scene. But we move into the final scene, Act five, scene five. And again, it's full of people we don't care about. Strato, Voluminius, Clytus. Like, who are these people? You know. And I didn't think it was really a strong ending. What? No, no. I thought, um, yeah, okay. Who are these people? Were they just, uh, well, it's, it's, it, when you read the, um, uh, the, uh, the cast, it's, it's clear enough. But I find more importantly than that, it, the actual ending. When uh, Mark Antony when Mark Antony talks about Brutus dying. So Brutus dies and he says uh, farewell and um, he realizes well, he kills himself, you see, and he he does it with more passion than he ever killed Caesar. It makes a point. And that's a very important fact it's yeah. because it shows you that um, that Brutus is a tragic hero in the sense of there's always, just like with Hamlet, Delped runs yeah. through. So he sits body. around with the remaining rabble, um, mostly his friends, not the original conspirators. They're mostly gone. And he decides the best thing to do is to kill himself. And you're right, he does it with more passion. That reminds me of a detail we forgot. When Cassius gets killed, Pindarus kills Cassius with the same sword, the same dagger that struck yes. that death blow to Caesar. So that's another little piece and of the, and Brutus And Brutus dies with his own sword, with Caesar's blood in it as well. So, yeah, so the two um, swords that's killed, you know, two of the swords that stabbed um, Caesar. So that's poetic. So it's, it's kind of Caesar, yeah, bringing, uh, seeking revenge again, and his ghost that appears. So Caesar got, Caesar got what, he, what he wanted in the end. And, you know, um, Anthony says when Brutus dies, this was the noblest Roman of them all. Everybody else says that about Anthony. But he says it about Brutus. And he says, of all the conspirators save only he did what they did in envy of great Caesar. He only, in a general honest thought and common good to all, made one of them. He was the only person trying to do good, not for his own sake or not for jealousy of Caesar or or anything petty, you know? Indeed, yeah. But it's his doubt, you see, um, tragic hero because it's his doubt in himself that ultimately leads to this tragedy because if he had truly believed in himself, he would have done it differently. He just wouldn't have followed Cassius, who was obviously a bad example. Um, so the thing is, Cassius convinced him because Brutus has these thoughts. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that he should have done the things that Cassius said, not in that way, could have been done differently. And this is essentially every tragedy, uh, you know, including all the modern breaking bad and all, whatever you have, it all goes down to making mistakes, uh, even though you could have done this better. Mm-hmm. And well, the here's a little is, bit of, oh, go ahead. Let, I'll let you finish. I, I just want to mention that Judas Caesar does not appear as someone who doubts. So in a sense, he, Judas Caesar does not make a mistake at all. It's mm-hmm. a certainty that even leads to the death of his enemies, even, even after he's died. So it's, it's certainly versus doubt, and doubt appears often mm-hmm. as a destructive uh, thing in Shakespeare's plays. 
for people that are to this time period, you know, we have writings surviving by the likes of Cicero, by Caesar himself, even crossing the Rubicon. But I want to make a political point about the closing 10 lines because yes. Mark Antony makes a speech that I've just referenced where he calls Brutus a hero, essentially. Yes. And then Octavius is the one who makes the final call, agrees yes. with Anthony, and says, well, we'll give him a proper burial. So that's Octavius taking charge, just like Caesar had done. And the third man, uh, the triumvirate, Lepidus, what has he done this whole time? Absolutely zero. So that's, indeed. you know, what I said earlier. Uh, indeed, earlier on, I think it's in the beginning of Act 4, is it? Um, we've, I forgot to mention that they talk about it, right? Anthony... Uh, Octavius and um, I for even for, yeah I even forget his name uh, Lepidus they talk about they drop their list that's the only time he appears sorry yes they they talk about and they talk and, and Mark Antony says well Lepidus is just uh, is, is no one and then Octavius says well well he's got a lot of experience and Mark Antony says well so does my horse <laughs> yeah that's an amusing part yeah and it, you know obviously Octavius then goes on, as I said, to become the first emperor of Rome, Caesar Augustus. And his position was very, very shaky at the beginning because there was no such thing as an emperor. And he has to be... Tiberius, who's the second emperor, is the first one who really has a bit more stability to his reign. Augustus, the whole time, is trying to persuade the senators that he's still... You know, they want him in that position because he's doing all their work for them. But his position is a little bit shaky because his position doesn't really exist. It's only when he then passes the emperorship on to Tiberius that it kind of becomes a real position, you know? Interesting. So it's uh, relevant that the play ends with him because he will be yeah, yeah. the I didn't read us at the time. Okay, thanks for mm-hmm. mentioning it. Wow, interesting. Okay, well, I, I thought it was a great ending and I really, I thought, um, there's a few things I'd like to mention here. First of all, uh, I think reading the, the whole play, it's a very... It's it's very poetic. I forgot how poetic it was. I forgot how pleasant mm-hmm. it is to just read it, how beautiful the rhyming is, which you wouldn't have necessarily in all of Shakespeare's plays. I mean, Roman Judith, yes, but I thought this was a particularly lyrical yeah. play. And yes, I, that you know, the dogs of war, there are a lot of great phrases that have been used here that is used in politics, especially. Um, so just even if you, not just the story, but the way it's written, uh, Mark Anthony's speech, I think, is my favorite. And the thing is, it doesn't have to be from a good person or honest. It's much of the beautiful speech is dishonest if it's not coming from Brutus or, or, or Caesar. Um, a lot of it is is kind of yeah fake. Um, so that leaves us again, but it leaves us still with the question: Should we should we murder a tyrant, even though it might be for the best? Because the, you know, because it will, it will backfire in the end, wouldn't it? It will backfire. You might, you will die, and war will happen. So you're still left with this moral dilemma. Mm-hmm. What should Brutus have done? What should Brutus have done? I personally wouldn't kill someone for any reason, even if it saves yeah. other people. That's my kind of philosophical position with the yeah, trolley yeah. problem and everything. But I think the majority of people would, and I think that within his moral code, I think Brutus definitely did the right thing. You know? But the problem is that's also a type of fascism just designed to kill someone. So it's not it, for me. It's 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 the whole time. This is full of kind of uh, of just people trying to gain control over people's lives. So nothing works. Not the Brutus, Julius Caesar. It's all <laughs> what, what they see is this person getting in unprecedented power. I mean, Rome had a history of kings just like everywhere. They've expelled them. They've got their republic. Um. 
And a lot of the American system is still based on Rome with the Senate and everything like that. And then they yeah. see this guy trying to be- become a king again, and they're horrified and they have to stop it. They have to stop the tyrant from taking over. I understand it, you know? Mm. And although I wouldn't do it myself, I couldn't... I'm not going to tell them they were wrong. Yeah, but I know? suppose... But in fiction, there is still a lot of interest in that. As I mentioned, the Dead Zone was even with Stephen King or Breaking Bad. You've got dates are they're very much in depth to Julius Caesar. This idea of um, of yeah, would you if you if you had the if you had the power to take um, the life of someone who's truly who's truly also killing other people? So it's just like, uh, but does that justify it? And won't you be Breaking Bad yourself when you do that? So. Well, I, I never understood like, what Breaking Bad meant, uh, and I watched all five seasons. I don't know what the title means. <laughs> <laughs> and that's the thing: Breaking Bad is you're breaking ba- into a bad character. You're a good person with good intention, but you have to do something that will make that you have to break bad within you to commit. You have to commit a crime with, uh, that okay. essentially is for the greater good, in your opinion. But well, it never justifies, really. I want to say two things. The first is that I like this a lot more than I thought I was going to. I'd forgotten how good it was. And although I thought reading it this morning that Acts 4 and 5 were a little bit weaker, discussing it then with yourself and pulling out some of the poetic scenes, I'm going to take that back. I still think it's potentially a little bit weaker after Caesar dies because the climax happens in the middle. But I I think that they're better than I thought they were. Um, But the second thing I want to say, I just looked something up because I knew there was another phrase in this play that, that entered our lexicon. The evil that men do lives after them. The good is often teared with their bones. That's a great quote from this play. And it was immortalized by Iron Maiden in the song, The Evil That Men Do oh, Lives yeah. On and On. So we, we get that quote in our in our popular lexicon from this play. Oh, interesting. Okay. Wow. Thanks for mentioning that. What, um, and also, for example, I think it also introduces the term uh, that's Greek for me, right? Whereas that's now the other one. Yes, I was looking Chinese for that as well. Thank you. I yes, find that one. <laughs> when they, I think when they talk about, um, I think they talk about what did Cicero say or something like that. Was it? Was it Cicero? Yeah, I, I, it's what, what they're asking. What someone said. It doesn't really matter who. And he says, "Yeah, that was all Greek to me." And we that's that's stuck in our in our modern phraseology as well. And there's a lot of references I find to uh, to whatever is going on in Shakespeare's time. And I believe also a bit about the theatrical world, just like Graham Greene made fun about Shakespeare. Shakespeare, I feel like, might be making fun of uh, Senna the Poet when they say, well, we have to kill you for a bad versus. I'm, w- <laughs> I'm wondering how uh, if some of them are modeled after some people Shakespeare didn't like. Good so me. there's some things behind uh, uh, the lines, you know, between the lines. Uh, I find it very enjoyable. Uh, and I just wanted to mention, uh, to me, I think it's a very interesting play to, uh, as a director, to perform. Do you want to be Orson Welles and make this about Julius Caesar being this fascist figure and we have to overthrow him because otherwise, you know, Holocaust will happen? Or the opposite? Do you want to make it more vague and it's mm. like, are you, are you, who are these people just killing a person even though he, even though this person's not perfect? And, I, I don't know how I would present this because part of me wants to present it as Caesar is the bad guy here, right? He's yes. trying to usurp the system and they're trying to stop him. But they are also the antagonists in a way. And Caesar That's is the I mean, kind yeah. of hero and he's the historical hero that everyone remembers. It is called you know, after him. Yeah, yeah well. so I, I kind of want to support him. And we look back and we think about Rome and all those emperors. We, we think of Rome as an emperor, an empire. Yes. We don't think of Rome as a republic. That was, you know, yes. 
and we think of the Roman Emperor and we, uh, we th- Empire, and we think, well, this started that empire, so this must be a great moment. But we're forgetting, well, for the people in the Republic, this was a terrible moment. You know, and, they're and they're indeed, overturning uh, the system. And not everything about Caesar. Well, yeah, yeah as you said, like Caesar's not clearly a bad person. He had an intention, for example, to build the biggest library in the world. Uh, he, he was going to build the biggest library in the world before wow. he's killed. So it's like the books boys have a certain dilemma now. Because, <laughs> you know, it's a I don't know how I would present it. That's the honest. I don't know. That's what I mean. I you know you can create. You can be very flexible. I think in general you can be mm. like that with Shakespeare, but particularly with. Um, Julius Caesar. So Orson Welles, having done that, was quite genius. It it launches career basically, you know. So um, the problem is, it it kind of makes me want to read Antony and Cleopatra now, but, but that's does, not yeah. as good, is it? I haven't read Antony and Cleopatra. Are you? Are we indicating something here? Is episode fourteen being already? If you want, it's the thing is, Alex tells me it's terrible, <laughs> but he also didn't like Julius Caesar that much, mm, so I don't Alex. know. I if you know. want to do it, I'll do it. We can. We can. Foreshadowing. I think, <laughs> I think people think the next trailer might be so more than is this a holiday? Might be some other phrase that's not famous from six Antarctica. months of build for that one. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. One year later. Oh my god! Because I think realistically, um, peek behind the curtain, we might do one or two more Shakespeare's if there's any that any of the three of us want to do. But we've done a fair few, and I think that we're enjoying the idea of doing other things. We did Doll's House, and there might be one or two other plays that we'd like to do. So we don't we don't want to be stuck with just Shakespeare, yeah, you know. Exactly. We'll keep it open, guys. Just uh, just stay tuned in Patreon and see what happens. And I'm also thinking once we've done a few more modern plays and wrapped up what we want to do, maybe towards the end of the year, I've spoken to Alex as well, I'm thinking we do a few Greek plays, you know, Playboys of Athens. So could be something sounds, coming up there sounds capital as well and don't forget a review of batman the latest batman comic that came out yes it's the <laughs> comic book uh chaps <laughs> the, the latest <laughs> show <laughs> i'm afraid uh, i can't convince dean to to get into the ninth or eighth arts that is the art of comic books anyway that's that's a whole nother subject <laughs> anything you want to add to no look guys i really i really love the play and yeah. If, you, if you're interested, look, Shakespeare's not the most historically accurate, but if you have any passing interest in Caesar and this time period and you don't plan on reading real histories, this is a fun one to, to pick yeah, up and learn a little, you know. And it's very easy to read a fun. I was very hooked. Uh, I was reading it late into the night and I was actually very moved. I, I read this in two hours this morning. Like I, I thought it was going to take me a lot longer. Faster. And I, I just, I didn't want to stop reading it, to be honest. Like, yeah, I really, really I didn't enjoyed want to stop it. Reading it. I didn't want to stop reading it, and that's the whole point. Um, it's okay. It's a. It's an old. It's in. It's from fifty ninety nine, but it still reads just like a thriller. It is a thriller. I mean, it's, yeah. it's amazing. That's what I love about Shakespeare. It's, it could have been written yesterday. And Do it's you so think that Shakespeare's still. ghost should have appeared at the final scene on the battle at Philippi? That might have been just just one line. Just that's surprising. Exactly. That he didn't. Yes, I'm, I'm surprised that Shakespeare's ghost isn't at the end of every. Sorry, sorry, um, Caesar's ghost. Sorry. Oh, I thought. <laughs> No, no, I like the idea of Shakespeare, <laughs> even though he wouldn't have been dead. Wouldn't uh, make any sense, no, because he, he appears <laughs> in Act Four and says "Go to Philippi," but then he doesn't pop up in Act Five. I just thought maybe another cameo from Caesar's ghost, you know. And I think I like the way he's thinking because that's the way Shakespeare. I think that Shakespeare regrets not having done that, so he does that with Hamlet, doesn't he? Uh, yeah, he does more is that 
So I find it interesting. Do you agree? Just to, I just want to mention as well. Um, do you agree that even though Julius Caesar is an amazing player, love it. But I mentioned earlier, I do feel that Hamlet, uh, for example, a later play, only slightly Hamlet, later. I think Hamlet came more or less after this one, didn't it? No, I think it came a few years later. I think Literally. it was sixteen or four. Okay. But I just find, do you find that at least Hamlet and some of the later plays they are clearly more mature? They're clearly even more thought out and that Shakespeare's themes mm. like as I mentioned Delft is, is, is stronger in Hamlet it's just stronger betrayal is portrayed even more dramatic in Hamlet yeah so I mean both... Hamlet's a very a very you know melodramatic kind of play you know to, to be fair and Hamlet's a near perfect play so that's exactly what... yeah so I mean but so so I'm not trying to downplay Julius Caesar now at the end of the episode. I'm just saying it's it's interesting. When uh, you see, if you'd said that at the beginning, they wouldn't have listened. You see, you save, you save that for the end. That's it. Save that for the end. That's <laughs> right. But yeah, it, I really love it, guys. And um, it's it's amazing. And I think it's a really, really relevant. One of the most relevant Shakespeare plays to read right now with you know, wars going on and these kind of figures and yeah, the dilemma, I suppose. And- so yeah. I don't know why I'm putting this on a Patreon episode, but go to Books Boys Podcast on Instagram because we've done some videos to promote this uh, stuff. Thousands Indeed. of people, thousands of people are, what's that? One video got 5,000, one got six, one got 18. It's, it's one Jay got Caesar's three. hit. <laughs> Everyone uh, to... wants to hear about Caesar. So. Everyone wants to hear about this. You know, they um, also the hashtag, is this a holiday? Seems to be the thing that people do want to hear at the moment. <laughs> We're going to get, is this a holiday t shirts with no other brand or context? <laughs> you know? What they know with books, boys, they become <laughs> almost synonymous. And I think the whole point of this is that we want to make that quote of the play more famous than Etu Brute or any of the other, you know, secondary. <laughs> more famous than the evil that men do, more famous than ah. Etu Brute. Yeah. More famous than it's all Greek to me. We can have a t-shirt with that at the back of the t-shirt crossed out. And at the (laughs) front, it's just, is this a holiday? That's it. Look, (laughs) I think we've done this one. We've done this one. We've done it. Guys, have a Shakespearean day. Is this a holiday?